0: There were some really rocky times. What'd you learn from these times? I learned that most people don't know uh, about your failures unless you tell them. <laughs>
1: <laughs> CEO and co-founder. <laughs>
0: co-founder.
1: I knew Andrew Yang as a fellow entrepreneur and as somebody who helped a lot of entrepreneurs around our country. That's something we have in common. And even though he and I don't fully agree on politics, it was awesome to see him jump in as a builder to get involved in our political system to put forward some great ideas for how to fix things and build things in our country. Andrew's empowered entrepreneurs all around our country. He's shaking out the Democratic establishment. What's he going to do next with the forward party? Really honored to have our friend Andrew Yang here with us today. Andrew, thank you for joining us. It's great to be here, Joe. American optimist indeed. <laughs> Andrew, many people know you from the Yang Yang, from your viral presidential run. You accomplished some pretty amazing things. But I want to start with one of the pivotal moments earlier in your life. Uh, after Columbia Law, you landed at a prestigious firm, but you quit the law firm after only five months to go become an entrepreneur. How, how did that happen?
0: Someone said something to me a while ago that I thought was good advice. It was uh, try and find someone who has the life and career you want and then uh, work with them and support them. Um, And what I found at this law firm was I was getting better at a job I didn't want. Uh, And just those two things being true, we're like, all right, I guess I should leave then. Um, So I left to start a failed.com at its mini rise and maximum fall. Uh, and my Asian parents weren't that pumped about this set of decisions. Your Your parents were immigrants who came over from Taiwan. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. That my My dad has, got his PhD in physics. My mom got her master's in uh, statistics. So you can imagine how, how nerdy that household was. Um, so they weren't really down with the entire leave the uh, cushy law firm job story. Uh, but I said, don't worry about it. I'll I'll figure it out. Uh, and then ended up um eventually, as you know, becoming head of an education company. But that was a number of years later. So I gotta say that that was like some stressful years for for uh, mom and dad Yang.
1: <laughs> do, do do you feel like like was it a good thing to go through having a failed startup? A lot of startups feel you ended up, you know, broke with all these loans. Like was but that was that make you stronger in some way? Yeah, I I became a party promoter during that
0: time. Uh <laughs> you know, I did some different things. Um and there were a few years there where I genuinely felt kind of bulletproof. I said, well, this can't be as bad as when my my company died. And then even after that company, I went to another company that ran out of money uh, in the wake of 9-11. So there were some really rocky times. What'd you learn from these times? I learned that most people don't know uh, about your failures, unless you tell them. <laughs> 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 and I, I joke in in one of my books. I said, like, no one knows you have a net worth of negative one hundred thousand unless you tell them, and like, you know <laughs> you're not like you hopefully keep that to yourself. Um, because as you mentioned, I did have school loans at that time. So uh, you realize a lot of it's in your head. And and so if you can get
1: your head working for you instead of against you, it's kind of a big deal. And then you went on to crush it with Manhattan Prep. It was bought by Kaplan, I think, right? Yeah. And then and you did Venture for America. So, so, so t- tell us about these things that worked out that you built. Do you take some lessons from what you did and figure it out? You know, I still look back fondly on my time running uh, that education company
0: because it was a private company and you just make very, very rational, pure decisions. And you have no one to answer to. It's just like, look, if it helps the business, then let's do it. If it doesn't, that's not, uh, uh, I met my now wife during that time, um, and so we joke all the time that it was like a bait and switch because I was like a fairly normal, <laughs> <laughs> reasonable, yeah, uh,
1: business executive at that time. Um, now all of a sudden she has to be with uh, with a presidential candidate. Huh? She didn't. She didn't get. She didn't plan for that.
0: No, no, that's that's the bait and switch. Um, where and my my wife uh, uh, so lucky, but she had no interest in anything political. Um, and if if. I were to retrace my steps. I actually had a list of life's goals. And one of the things I definitely advise is just write down goals cause it magically helps you achieve them. Um, but one of my goals was help elevate a national political figure. Yeah. Um, because my thinking was if I can find someone who do the right things in office, then they can do them and I don't
1: have to, uh, and uh, it was not on my list to actually ever run for office myself. That, that's how I think about it as well. My wife happens to be very interested in policy. I think today she's with Governor Abbott and Betsy DeVos on education policy while I'm, I'm here in New York. And But she's like, do not run. That seems like it'd be... Terrible, but so you guys had to have a conversation and, and about that, like, like had that. Well, work? what's
0: kind of funny, Joe, is that um, when I said, "Hey, baby, I'm thinking of running for president," uh, she didn't take it that seriously. Uh, she, I, no, think, I, I think uh, her
1: exact uh, question was, "Of." That's true. I think that's, that's what that's what that's what Kimmy told me. She said to you too, my, my business partner in VC. She said to you, "Kimmy, I'm gonna run for president. She president of what?" <laughs> yeah. So so because of that, it it actually wasn't this soul searching,
0: gripping like, "What are we gonna do? Our lives are gonna change?" One thing I said to her, which was totally wrong. Um, um, was I was like, uh, she said, are we going to lose our privacy? And I was like, would you recognize Amy O'Rourke if she walked in uh, or Jeanette Rubio? And she was like, I guess not. And I was like, there you go. Yeah. You'll be fine. you, And I actually didn't even think anyone would recognize me, which is sort of bizarre given that I, I was running for president. Um, but it was only after the first presidential debate in summer 2019 where I'd get recognized on the street. And then my wife would say, I can't take you anywhere because anywhere we yeah. go, then they you know, all mob you.
1: But for her yeah. and your kids, it hasn't been it hasn't been too bad. It's been a positive thing. Uh,
0: yeah, I, I'm very lucky that way. Um, my kids did not care about anything I was doing. My my wife tried to get them to watch the presidential debates, and they were like, "This shit is boring," and just like drifted off. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, that's so great. Uh,
1: like our family life is pretty similar. I'm happy to say. And so, so from your end, you're an entrepreneur. You've got some successes. You're obviously an unconventional thinker or risk taker. Like, how did that? Tie, tie into building the cultures around you and these, and these other areas now you're working on?
0: Uh, well, thanks, man. So, so the, the intermediate step was, I left um, Washington Post, which, which bought my company, um, to start a nonprofit venture for America. And you and I met during that time. Um, so, I marched around the country for six years trying to help Entrepreneurs and startups and growth companies in Detroit, Cleveland, Birmingham, New Orleans. Uh, and so I saw the aftermath of the automation of manufacturing jobs, uh, and then Trump wins in 2016. So I think, oh, that's actually a result of these economic
1: changes. A lot of people who are struggling a lot and not, not being heard.
0: Yeah. And, and you and I work in, in technology companies. So you know that a lot of things are changing. You know, it's not changing so much our political system. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's pretty static. Uh, and, and so since I started venture for America, I've had, um, the opportunity to work with people who are genuinely purpose-driven. And I'm going to give you all an example, anyone watching this. The people who joined Andrew Yang's 2020 presidential campaign as staffers, think about that decision. It was objectively a bad decision. <laughs> well, you know, well you know what it could I mean? be a good decision even if you don't win. Well, so so the people who joined were all about like, okay, I think this is an important campaign because it's going to get uh, a message out, it's going to advance certain totally. solutions. Uh and but but it wasn't
1: wise professionally. Well you they, know they, I mean? they weren't they, it was unlikely you're going to win, but you, but it was important the impact they were having.
0: Yeah. So uh so because of that sort of motivation, you can imagine the people being very idealistic, uh very selfless, um uh and um not out for credit. So I've had the benefit of working in those sorts of um, organizations because uh, I became a bit of a do-gooder at a certain point, and then the the and the folks who've been working with me weren't going to make as much as they could make in other
1: environments. So that's a little bit different than some of the companies you were trying to build in the past, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I again, I look back very fondly in my time running a, a private business because you could reward people. If someone was good, you could be like, hey, like let let's give you a promotion, a raise. You could organize a trip to a concert or a Knicks game or a ski resort and no one gives a shit because
1: it's like whatever, you you're, uh, but you're if you, your
0: company, you just decide if to do it. You do, do that. that on a
1: campaign almost it's more controversial, huh?
0: Yeah. <laughs> so the 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 um trajectory is different. Where on a campaign then people aren't Uh, you know, trying to get a promotion, hopefully, like as as their you know reason for being there. Um, but then you feel immense pressure to actually try and accomplish whatever the campaign's goals were. Uh, you know, it's it's a little bit similar to a nonprofit. Um, where your, um, incentives are different. Um, so I've worked in a lot of different environments. I do miss the small private business uh, because again, everything makes sense. And then in nonprofits. Uh, it's a bit of a hybrid, but there are a lot of people who are supporting your nonprofit because they believe in, in your mission. And so if you're a good leader, you're not like my way, or the highway, it's like, you've got myriad stakeholders. Yeah. And then a political campaign is that taken to an even further extreme where it really shouldn't be about you, you, you. It's about some vision or set of goals. The,
1: the broader goal for society. Yep. So one of the core principles of so you, you started the forward party now so you've gone from being a democratic candidate to an independent and one of the core principles is bottom up not top down which I which I really like that's part, that's a big part for for high sea society what do you, what do you mean by that is, is you said you want to take rigid top down platforms and expect it to work everywhere like like why did you come to this framework
0: yeah so. Uh- Right now, the national approval rate for U.S. Congress, what do you think it is? You probably it's know. It's probably it, very right? low. It's probably like, I don't know, 12 percent. What is it? Uh, it's 22 percent as of yeah, last month. So you're pretty, pretty close. close. Still pretty Yeah, yeah, yeah pretty close. Um, what is the reelection rate for individual members of Congress? It's very high, I guess. Yeah, it is. Is it 80? What is it? Very, very good guess. It's ninety-four percent. Whoa! <laughs> yeah, even more extreme than I would have guessed. Yeah. yeah. So it's a higher win rate than the Durant era Golden State Warriors or the Jordan era Chicago Bulls. And so you can imagine, <laughs> like the incumbents are like the best team you've ever seen <laughs> that, That's that whoever's funny. challenging them. So then you have to ask why this massive disconnect with a twenty-two percent approval rating and a ninety-four percent re-election rate. Mm-hmm. And the reason is that ninety percent of the congressional districts around the country are drawn to be either blue or red and are uncompetitive yep. in the general.
1: The only real competition is from your own side from the extremists on your own side.
0: Yes, which ends up distorting your incentives, because to keep my job, I don't need to make 51% of the people in my district happy. I just need to keep the 10 to 12% most extreme, rabid, hyper-partisans happy, which looks very, very different than the uh, mainstream. That's, what, that's
1: why you see crazy
0: policy on both sides sometimes. It doesn't work. And what's even darker, Joe, is that a U.S. senator said this to me, and this is very important for people to understand. She said, an issue is now worth more to us unaddressed than addressed yeah because if it's not addressed, I can get you mad, I can raise money, I can get votes. If I lean forward to address it, what happens? I get attacked by, as compromising with the enemy, ideologically impure, people won't be happy with it the compromise it's terrible. Made. This is
1: the immigration issue is not, not to solve it especially yeah
0: Marco Rubio is is the uh, is, is the example I use where he stepped forward, what is it, 10, 11 years ago and said, hey, how about we have bipartisan immigration reform? And then a week later walks it back. Why? Because within that week, everyone in his party was like, Marco, what are you doing? Like if we advance this thing, we're all going to take a beating. Um, and so you have these distorted incentives that uh, serve to perpetuate. A set of political leaders while the problems get worse, not better. Um, and this is in part because our country has essentially been divvied up by the two parties into red turf and blue turf. If you're in a rural area... Ninety-five percent chance that it's Republican. If you're in a coastal city, ninety-five percent wow. chance it's
1: it's. So, so, is it, so the incentives are all crowded. screwed up? And you and got you guys are pushing for like rank choice voting, of course, for nonpartisan primaries, independent disagreeing that kind of stuff's going to fix this a little bit. You think? To- well,
0: so the the, the best uh, example. And by the way, um, if anyone really is into this, because I sense a lot of people who uh, listen to you are really uh, smart. <laughs> so there's a book. Uh, written by Michael Porter and Catherine Gale called The Politics Industry, which ended up guiding my thinking uh, that that I I summarized in in my book, Uh, which is that our political systems incentives are messed up. Uh, It's going to give us bad policy and polarization and dysfunction and people turning on each other by design. Um, because, again, you're listening to the extremes, then you get polarized by media and social media. Um, uh, and so the way out of this is to change the incentives. And you're like, OK, that seems pretty reasonable. So how do you do it in real life? What you do is you get rid of the party primaries and you say, anyone can vote for any candidate in mm-hmm. an and all-candidate all open primary Uh, And then you choose among the top four or five candidates via ranked choice voting.
1: And that's going to make the extremes much less popular and less likely to win. Yeah, because uh, in ranked choice voting, you need to
0: get to 50.1% in order to to win. So they made this change in Alaska in 2020. And then this past cycle, you saw Sarah Palin lose uh, to uh, an Alaskan state legislator named Mary Peltola. but. As important, and this got underrated by the press a lot, so the press was like Sarah Palin, everyone knows who that is, let's talk about that. But what they didn't dig into was that Lisa Murkowski was the only U.S. senator who voted to impeach Donald Trump who was also up for re-election.
1: And she was able to do it with this with this, with this because,
0: so so check this out it's important so her approval rating among Alaskan Republicans plummets after she votes to impeach Trump and, and we we know that 8 out of 10 of the house republicans who voted to impeach Trump didn't make it back even through the primary so it, it is professionally suicidal to vote to impeach Trump um but in Alaska there's no party primary so then she comes and says to the general public being like hey guys I'm my own person And in a Republican primary, she loses. She was up against a Trump endorsed challenger named Kelly Shabaka. Um, But there's no primary. So it just goes to the general public, and enough uh, independents and and moderates and and Dems say, say, I like Lisa. And so she wins. And I'm going to take this a step further is that do you think that the absence of the party primary actually made her more? able to vote to impeach Trump? And the answer is yes. I know that a bunch of Republican senators went to Lisa and said, I envy you that, you that they made this change. So the change in Alaska cost $6 million in a ballot initiative in 2020. The same set of changes was on the ballot in Nevada. This, uh, uh, past midterm and uh, it passed. So imagine a system where you just turn off the incentives that are polarizing us and making us more extreme and irrational and rewarding people like Glenn Youngkin, as an example. Glenn Youngkin was chosen to be a ranked choice voting in the Republican nomination process in the Virginia party primary. So it, it's, uh, it, it sounds nerdy and wonky, but it's actually fundamental it's to help, the, helping us get
1: more, more moderate, more good leaders. You mentioned your book, by the way. It's in the paperback just came out, right? Forward? Yep. In paperback now, made the bestseller list. Very exciting. Congrats. No, I've, I've, I'm getting going on. I'm excited But it. W- Want to talk a little bit about like dysfunction in our country and like how we fix things. So one of, I, you know, I moved out of San Francisco because my wife didn't feel comfortable walking around the neighborhood. We thought it had gone pretty dysfunctional, pretty disheartened to see in LA that I, someone was, I thought was going to be a t- t- person to fix it, wasn't able to beat the political machines in the, in the, in these cities. Like what, what's going on in our major cities? Like why are they broken? Like how should we be thinking differently?
0: Uh, so, uh, when you talk about the distorting uh, incentives, so I ran for mayor here in New York City, uh, as, as some might remember. Um, 900,000 people voted in the Democratic primary that essentially decided who won. The population of New York City is around 9 million.
1: Yep. So, yeah, 10% <laughs> of so people voted, basically.
0: 10% of people voted, and that means the person who won might have literally gotten uh, like 4% of the vote or something, uh, you know, uh, along those lines. It was true of de Blasio too. Um, So you have a a political system that's really um, captured by folks who have the highest level of interest in the status quo very often.
1: Because the status quo actually, and I've been learning about this a lot recently, there's Thousands of people who work in LA and New York and San Francisco paid by the city and there's thousands, and, and there's thousands more in NGOs who are all benefiting from the status quo. And in my, my experience anyways, a lot of people work for those NGOs will come out almost like a political machine and they'll help someone get elected who they know is going to keep funding their NGO and their current way of doing things. So it seems like there's this like major insider game.
0: It, 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 there's a, a
1: massive problem. Uh, and so when I was running for mayor here in
0: New York, people would come up to me on the street and say, hey, Yang, uh, like what you're about, uh, I'd like to support you in your primary. And I'd say, thank you. Are you a registered Democrat? And they would say, no, I'm an independent or I'm a Republican. Uh, and then they'd say, can I vote in your primary? And I said, only if you have a time machine, because you needed to register as a Democrat six months wow. ahead of time. Wow. And so then if you're a rational person, you're like, why would they make rules that make it so difficult for someone to participate? That is what we're trying to change with the forward party here in New York. You have one party rule. It's not working yep. out, according to a lot of people. I'm going to suggest to anyone listening or watching, one party rules is just not great. <laughs> no,
1: no, 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 matter which, no matter which party it is. No matter, no matter which, which party it is. It's yeah. just because
0: most people watching this or listening to this are probably business types. Um, and so we're accustomed to competition, bring out the best in organizations and decision making. Yep. Right now, 37 out of 40 states are one party states. Yep. Uh, so you have three quarters where it's uncompetitive. And so the forward party wants to come to a place like New York and say, look, let's uh, open up the system and make it so people have some, some more choices. We also want to do the same thing in a place like Missouri. Uh, uh and, uh, it, it's, it's funny, like, you know, it's the way I see the world, but, um, you have like a guts and systems and incentives problem. Um, and what we're doing is we're personalizing all of it. We're like, you know what we need? We need a person to stand up and like do this. And it's like, no, no, no. You need someone
1: to actually, uh, fix the, the mechanics. So, so I, I want to ask a little bit more about policy, uh, cause the Ford party. We represent a lot of good ideas from things I've heard. One of the things I'm obsessed with on the policy side, you know, the CISRO Institute, is we do accountability and competence mm-hmm. in government. And we're passing a lot of laws different states to put in accountability, put in incentives, innovation. Have, have you thought about these issues a lot? Yeah, man, that, that's
0: core. You and I are totally aligned on this. Uh, and my fondest vision is that there's a dashboard in the halls of Congress that just shows how the country's doing. And then when a member of Congress shows up, they just sit, like pick a few of them and say, those are the ones that I want to see improve. Right now, there is no accountability. There's really, <laughs> there's really not. <laughs> anyway, and, 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 again, you have a 94% reelect, right?
1: It's <laughs> there. And you, you can be a piece of furniture as long as you play the game. What's amazing to we're working on this for like prisons. We probably all agree they should have like less recidivism right, and more employment. We're working on it. For vocational education, all these politicians talk about funding vocational education, which I agree with. But then you go to the schools and kids are failing. And I don't know if you saw it. A few states, we changed the incentives where the vocational schools, they only got money based on the salaries of the students coming out. And so the salaries went up over 100%. Wow. Because all of a sudden they have to, you know, do what's right. Yeah, by the
0: numbers, we should be investing very, very heavily in vocational and apprenticeship. Um, and one of the reasons we're not, uh, you, you have you had Richard Reeves on the podcast? I have not. He wrote a book called Of Boys and Men. And what he says look, uh, vocational apprenticeship programs disproportionately help uh, men with high school educations. Um, and that's great because it turns out that men generally are falling behind. You know that yeah. men are only 40% of college students. I know. Now? It's
1: all girls now.
0: Ladies, and, and, and young ladies. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> and,
1: and, 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 and so when you wind up
0: um, with a, lo- a lot of men who aren't going to college and you don't have uh, the apprenticeship or vocational uh, training for them, then they they wind up in very tough situations. No,
1: I didn't. I think men are, men are really underperforming. It's interesting. In the top 1% of our country, for various reasons, but maybe some of them are inappropriate, men are outperforming. But in the average, men are underperforming. It's fascinating. Yeah, that's, I, I see the same numbers. Um, you know, you said we got to invest more in vocational education. I always see people talking about investing, but then, but then I, but, but I, but I never see them, or very rarely see them willing to like put on at the end of it, like, okay, we're going to tie the money to certain outcomes I, for these places. I, like, I, I, I want to tie the money to the outcomes Why is, everywhere, is that, man. I, and, and I and I'll talk to I'll talk to anyone from people on the moderate right to moderate left, and they'll tend to agree. I, I see, especially the far left seems to be against accountability in government, maybe because they're tied to government and unions, where they're where they're worried that if we put accountability, we're going to change things. Like like it seems like that's a big problem right now, where we have these special interests who are against accountability. Is this is this a battle worth having? And, and, and is is it a really hard battle? Like, what do we do to get there?
0: Yeah, yeah, man, it, it it's fundamental. Um, So here again, it's an incentives problem. Check it out. Let's say that I start a new program to help kids learn better. Uh, And then let's say four years later, it turns out the program's not working. Um, Who gets rewarded by someone looking up and being like, hey, guys, you know that program we spent $100 million on or hundreds or billions? No results. Uh, like it's in no one's interest to raise their hand and be like, Hey, the, the stuff we've been doing like wasn't good. Or that person who, who attended the ribbon cutting or whatever the heck, like turn,
1: it turns out be, like there's no accountability in the system. Um, I feel like you get grumpy people on the right who sometimes do this. How do we get the, how do we get other, I mean, sometimes they're giving money the bad things that they did too. It's like, like how do you, how do you create, change the culture there?
0: Yeah. Uh, it, it's by, and this is gonna sound, uh, ridiculous, but to me it's through reforms like nonpartisan primaries and ranked choice voting because if you had an open system um, and it was more dynamic, and I had to come to you and say, "Look, reelect me. I need 51% of the general public to to say things are actually working here." That's a very that's a much better incentive structure than, "Hey, I've got the 10% of uh, hardcore,
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, like they're not they're, they're not gonna like that, yeah." Uh, like the, like the hardcores, a lot of them they have their bread buttered within the system in a particular way. They, they really do, and they're getting paid off by it. So, I want to ask about, you championed universal basic income during your presidential run. Uh, where do you stand on that now? Is Are there are, are there some other underlying psychological or spiritual problems UBI can't solve? Is UBI still a big part of what you think is the solution? Well, so, when you talk about
0: results, when you talk about facts, when you talk about data, uh, 174 economists signed a letter saying we should keep the enhanced child tax credit that got uh, passed as part of COVID relief in 2021. It. Brought something like three million kids out of poverty. Uh, it, the money um, categorically went to school supplies uh, and food, and uh, you know things that uh, the very again like 174 economists were like, "This is the best thing we've done."
1: Yeah, we love give give more money to people who, with kids because because it, it leads to better outcomes.
0: Yeah, it leads to better outcomes. Uh, and then, unfortunately, because we operate in a society where results and outcomes are not the uh, the measuring stick, um, we took that away. Um, I'm just someone who wants to uh, invest in what's working
1: and do less of what's not working. We're doing a lot of stuff that's not moving the needle. And we're doing a lot of stuff that's crony, too, right? I mean, I, yeah, I, totally. I I build a lot of defense companies, but I look at, like, half the defense budget, and it's like welfare for like for defense stuff. It's not even stuff that we need against our adversaries, which drives me crazy. So it seems like there's lots of things that we spend money on. I'd much rather be giving it to the kid people with kids, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's like, why, yeah. yeah by, by the numbers. Uh, and um, here in New York City,
0: uh, we're spending of uh, something like 17,000 per student per year in the, in the classroom where we were when I was looking at the numbers. Um, actually, what I, I just said is, I think, it's too low. It might be like 30,000. <laughs> so if you had 30 kids in a classroom, 30,000 a head, uh, nine hundred thousand. You're looking around, being like, "Where the heck's that money going?" It's not going to the yeah, teacher. No. Um, and, and is it the administrators. Right? And, but 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 when you dig into it even further, Joe, what you find out is that um, it turns out that uh, a majority of the kids' performance is determined by out of school factors anyway. Oh yeah. Uh, by things like stress levels in the house and nutrition uh, and, and the rest of it. So, so what we're doing is we're pumping more and more money into yeah. a a poor functioning system. Um, and then saying, why isn't it working? Why isn't it working? It's like, well, actually, the data shows that, 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 that there are like did a lot you, of other things that go into it. Did, did you ever? And s- then we closed those schools for the, you know, better part of two years, uh, because
1: again of like the, the cronyism. Terrible policy. Did you, did you ever follow Roland Fryer's education policy? He's a, he's an African American economist at Harvard. I thought it was fascinating. So we tested all these different things, like what, where to use the money best. And, and, and there's one thing is like people say smaller class sizes matter. And he tested all of it. And the thing he found in these poor inner cities that actually had the biggest impact was giving the kids money uh, for better grades which sure. is, which is very controversial. but I thought it was fascinating. If you made the kids care, then these kids actually do outperform.
0: Dude, they did something similar, uh, with, uh, folks coming out of jail for violent crimes, essentially saying like, Hey, if you don't commit a violent crime, we'll give you a little bit of money. Money. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> aggressive, man. That's
1: mean, <laughs> that works though. Huh? It,
0: it, it, apparently it was the most effective
1: thing that anyone had thought of. I mean, it costs so much to put someone in jail anyway. We should be thinking about that a little mm-hmm. bit. I mean, uh,
0: you know, when you look at some of the numbers too, I mean, like, uh, we, we were spending, um, uh, uh, it was, I mean, it's been a minute since I had these numbers and at the top of my, um, tongue, but, uh, we were, we were spending, maybe 5000 a month per homeless person here in New York City. Uh, and then you look at it and be like, wait a minute, that's more than
1: rent for a studio apartment. Oh, yeah, apartment, oh, yeah you might as well just pay for that. It, yeah. <laughs> No, and it's gone up. The problem is there's, there's there's a famous story in California where they where there's an apartment of Native Americans, whatever they called it, and they're spending, it turned out, like some insane amount of money, like $40,000 per Native American. So people just looked at it and said, you know what, you could just close down that apartment and just give them the money. They'd probably be a lot happier. And of course, the 37,000 people who were in the apartment like, no, it's a horrible idea. But come on, like, who are you really helping? <laughs> America. I want <laughs> to ask a little bit more about Venture for America. T- tell us more about what you did there. What what, what was that? What, oh
0: what gosh, that? man! So uh, so Venture for America w- was driven by my conviction um, that what smart people um, do matters. <laughs> and so uh, I uh, went to Exeter Brown and Columbia Law, um, and uh, what I realized from experience was that our smart kids in this country were doing one of six things in six places finance, consulting, law, tech, medicine, or academia in New York, San Francisco, uh, Chicago, LA, DC, Boston. And it was literally 80% of the intellectual products from these institutions, we're going to go to one of these six places and do one of yep. these six things. Uh, and what what I thought over time was like, well, it's going to be bad for Michigan, Ohio, Alabama. We Louisiana. Got to, we got to spread it Missouri. out. We got to spread it out. So Venture for America, which by the way is still thriving today. So if anyone likes this idea, you can feel free to you know cut them a check. I mean, it's a C three. Yeah. <laughs> so what we do is we identify uh, enterprising, ambitious college grads who want to learn how to build businesses and send them to work at startups. In Detroit, Cleveland, oh, awesome, St. Louis, man. Baltimore, Birmingham, they work alongside the founders and the team for two years, uh, helping it grow. You know, mm-hmm. develop their chops, and then at the end of it. Uh, they can, if they want to start their own business, we have an accelerator and seed fund to help them. So you can think amazing. of it as like teach for America for entrepreneurship. Um, That, that was what I spent six years building.
1: It's amazing. Well, part of the reason we moved to Texas is it's in the middle of a lot of different places. I fly to all the time now. Cause I, like, I think America has been more successful at spreading things out a lot the last five or 10 years. So you could obviously contributed to that, which I appreciate.
0: Unfortunately, man, COVID contributed a lot.
1: it just like that just spread
0: out a lot of people and, and I mean, bad policy in San
1: Francisco probably contributed to, but still, it's, 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 yeah, it's, no, it's, and,
0: it's I mean, I have a lot of friends. I've been to San Francisco. A Walgreens got robbed right in front of me. It was one of those things where you can't even just draw it up. Like, I was, and I was in town for like a day. I walk into Walgreens, dude just seals, the you know, runs out with a bag full of stuff. And I'm like, like, I I freeze because I'm just like, oh shit, like, you know, this is unexpected. And then the person next to me just looks over at me and just says, San Francisco shrugs it's, <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, there's a,
1: there's a lot of missing leadership there. We got to fix. So I work a lot in the policy for this. And I, I I hope other cities don't follow their lead because a lot of other cities are hiring the same people who ran these things in San Francisco. And that really concerns me. Well, the, the, the tough part, again, is you, you don't have much accountability in the system uh, and people just vote with their feet like you and your family did. Yeah. I fought it for a bit, but, I, you know, they demonize you if you speak against them too much and you come close to having an impact and they try to make everyone think you're a bad person. So it's just, it's just, it's just no one wants to speak up and be attacked. You know? But
0: you did see the people rise up in San Francisco to uh, eject the uh, DA.
1: They, um, then they really have. And I have my old college friend from Palantir, also Gary Tan and all these other friends. Yes, of mine Gary. This. I saw him yeah. when I was
0: out there and yeah. Gary
1: stepped up and Gary's the
0: best type of activist where he had no desire to do it, but it was he just didn't like, want well, I guess to. you to do it. You know what's funny? You know? He and I would
1: argue politics in our fraternity. We ended up working at Palantir together. I was more moderate, right? He's more moderate left, but we're on the same side when it came to San Francisco because, you know, we just got to fix it, you know? And that is
0: what forward's trying to do for the entire country is that you have... So if, if you were to oversimplify, but it's pretty accurate. Um, so historically, Republicans have been to the daddy party, Democrats have been to the mommy party, um, but the Republicans have kind of taken on this uh, crazy uncle energy. Yeah, <laughs> um, we do and, have some of that and, lately. <laughs> and the Democrats have become kind of the uh, overbearing schoolmarm energy. Yep. Uh, and yep. so, like, all the people in the middle who just want you know, like positive functioning things are looking up being like, where's my home nowadays? And forward wants to be home for those people to stand up to and say, you know what, where? What? why uh, this seems so crazy is because
1: the incentives reward craziness. It doesn't reward solutions uh, and following the data. I love it. Well, so Andrew, we started American Optimist to push back on some of the cynicism and pessimism we're seeing in our country. What are some of the reasons you're most bullish on America the next couple of decades?
0: Well, I, I can see the path in, In things like uh, getting rid of party primaries and switching to nonpartisan primaries and ranked choice voting, which passed in Nevada, despite the fact that both political parties came out against it. Think about that. Um, and, And the first advertisement in that campaign was a military veteran talking to the camera saying, I went abroad, served the country, I'm an independent and I can't vote in, in this yeah, <laughs> system because they force you to register. I love it. And, yeah. and so every day Nevadans stood up and said, Hey, like that argument makes a lot more sense to me than the, what the parties were saying. And the parties, man, I was in Nevada, um, campaigning for uh question three, which, which was about ballot initiative. uh, $17 million was spent by, um, uh, folks who want to fix our democracy, including a lot of the people I work with. Um, And then everyday Nevadans said, like, uh, I believe that military veteran, I believe my own common sense more than I believe the two political parties telling me that it's too confusing.
1: (laughs) It's an an oligopoly. It doesn't want to be disrupted like every other oligopoly. And and that's why
0: I started forward is because there's no way to make it happen from within the system. Like the system will defend the system. It will. And so if you want to reform the system, you have to come outside of it, gather a bunch of patriots and energy and resources and smarts and say, okay, like we can defend defeat this system that is at this point, uh, you know, leading our communities in the wrong direction. And the people of Nevada raised their hand up hand and said that we're with you.
1: And, and what would you say to young people? A lot of young people think the world's broken beyond repair. They're feeling very negative. Like what, what, what would you tell those young people? How would you inspire them?
0: Well, first, I'd say that they're not completely off base uh, and that we've left them a mess uh, by the numbers. Um, and we're going to need their help to clean it up. And it's not entirely fair, but that's just the situation. We're in. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and, that, and two-thirds of young people don't consider themselves either Republicans or Democrats. Uh, and so I think it can be very, very uh, aligned with their perspective to say, look, let's reform this broken system.
1: Awesome. Well, Andrew, I think that's a great note to leave it on. Don't forget to check out his, his book, Came to Paperback Forward. Thanks so much for joining us, Andrew.
0: Thank you, Joe. It's a pleasure. It's great seeing you.